The Practice of Piety, a Puritan devotional manual by Lewis Bailey, a, a classic from 1611, went through 100 editions. This is number five, and just a wonderful book to so pay close attention. <coughs> Meditations on the Hindrances Which Keep Back a Sinner from the Practice of Piety. Those hindrances are chiefly seven. Roman numeral one, an ignorant mistaking of the true meaning of certain places of the Holy Scriptures and some other chief grounds of Christian religion. The scriptures mistaken are these. Number one, Ezekiel 33, 14, and 16. At, what's, at what time soever a sinner repenteth of his sin, I will blot out all, etc. Hence the carnal Christian gathers that he may repent when he will. It is true whenever a sinner does repent, God will forgive, but the text says, says not that a sinner may repent whenever he will, but when God will give him grace. Many, says the scriptures, when they have not repented, were rejected and could not repent, though they sought it carefully with tears. Hebrews 12, 17, Luke 13, 27, 24, and 27. What comfort yields this text to those who have not repented, nor knowest whether thou hast grace to repent hereafter? He's, he's talking about the mistake people make of, well, I'll repent sometime in the future, and they never get around to it. Matthew, number two, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Hence the lutus man collects that he may come unto Christ when he list. But he must know that no man ever comes to Christ, but he who, as Peter says, having known the way of righteousness, have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Second Peter two twenty and twenty two. To come unto Christ is to repent and believe, Isaiah one eighteen, John six thirty five. And this no man can do except his heavenly Father draw him by his grace, John six four. Number three, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. True, but there are such who walk not after the flesh as thou dost, but after the Spirit, which thou dost never yet resolve to do. Four, 1 Timothy 1, 15. Come Jesus, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, etc. True, but such sinners who, like St. Paul, are converted from their wicked life, not like thee, who still continue within thy lewdness. For that grace of God which bringeth salvation to all men teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldliness we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Titus 2.11 and 12. And Proverbs uh, number 5, Proverbs 24.16. And he, what he's doing, he's basically preaching here against the carnal Christian heresy, this idea that you don't really need to repent. And this is uh, Proverbs 24.16. A just man falleth seven times in a day and riseth, etc., in a day is not in the text, by the way. It's not in the Hebrew. Which means not falling into sin, but falling into trouble. Which is malicious enemy plots against the just, and from which God delivers him. Psalm 34, 19. And though it meant falling in and rising out of sin, what, what is this to thee? Whose falls every man may see every day, may see every day. But neither God nor man can at any time see thy rising again by repentance. Number six. Isaiah 44.6, all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Hence the carnal Christian gathers that seeing the best works of the best saints are no better than his are, than his are good, good enough, and therefore he needeth not much grieve that his devotions are so imperfect. But Isaiah means not in this place that the righteous works of the regenerate 
as fervent prayers in the name of God, charitable alms in the bowels of mercy, suffering in the gospel's defense, the spoil of goods, the spilling of blood, and such works which Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. <clears throat> but the prophet making a humble confession in the name of the Jewish church, when she had fallen into, from God into idolatry, acknowledges that whilst they were by their filthy sins separated from God, as lepers are from men, by their infectious sores and polluted clothes, their chief righteousness could not be but abominable in his sight. And though our best works compared with Christ's righteousness are no better than unclean rags, yet in God's acceptation, for Christ's sake, they are called white raiment. Romans 3.18 Yea, purifying linen and shining. Revelation uh, 19.8 That was Revelation 3.18 and then Revelation 19.8 Far unlike the leopard spots. Jeremiah 13.23 and filthy garments. Zechariah 3.4 and then 7, James 3, 2, In many things we all sin. True. But God's children sin not in all things as thou doest, without either bridling their lusts or mortifying their corruptions. And though the relics of sin remain in the dear, dearest children of God, and they have need daily to cry, Our Father which art in heaven, forgive us our trespasses. Yet in the New Testament, none are properly called sinners, but the unregenerate. Galatians 1, 15, Romans 5, 8, and John 9, 31. But the regenerate, in respect of their zealous endeavor to serve God in unfeigned holiness, are everywhere called saints, insomuch that John says, Whoever is born of God sinneth not, 1 John 3, 9 and 5, 18. That is, liveth not in willful filthiness, suffering sin to reign in him, as thou dost, as we, as we noted earlier today. Uh, you know, they don't perser- persevere in habitual wickedness. Deceive not thyself with the name of a Christian, whosoever liveth in any customary gross sin, he liveth not in the state of grace. Let therefore, says St. Paul, every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 2 Timothy 2.19 The regenerate sin, but upon frailty. They repent, and God doth pardon. Where they sin not to death, 1 John 5.16 The reprobate sin maliciously, sinfully, and delight therein, so that by their good will sin shall leave them before they will leave it. They will not repent, and God will not pardon. Therefore their sins are mortal, says St. John, or rather immortal, as says St. Paul, Romans 2.5. It is no excuse, therefore, to say we are all sinners. True Christians, thou seest, are all saints. <coughs> Number eight. In other words, the excuse, well, we're all sinners, so I'm not going to die daily. I'm not going to repent and follow Christ. Uh, you know, people do that. And then uh, 8, Luke twenty three forty three. The thief converted at the last grasp was received into paradise. What then? If I may have but time to say, when I am dying, Lord, have mercy upon me, I shall likewise be saved. But what if thou shall not? And yet many in that day shall say, Lord, Lord, and the Lord will not know them. Matthew seven twenty two and 23. The thief was saved, for he repented, but his fellow had no grace to repent and was damned. Beware, therefore, lest trusting do Late repentance at the last end on earth, be thou driven to repent too late without end in hell. Number nine, John one seven first John one seven. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. In first John two one, if any man sin we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, etc. Oh comfortable. But hear what Saint John saith in the same place, my little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. If therefore thou leavest thy sin, these comforts are thine, else they belongeth not to thee. In other words, if they don't, if you don't repent. Number 10, Romans 5.20. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. O sweet, but hear what Paul addeth. 
What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Romans 6, 1 and 2. This place teaches us not to presume, but that we should not despair. None therefore of thy promises promises any grace to any but to the penitent heart. The grounds of, of religion mistaken are these. Number one, from the doctrine of justification by faith only. A carnal Christian gathers that good works are not necessary, but commends others to do good, that do good works. But he persuades himself that he shall be saved by his faith without doing any such matter. But he should know that though good works are necessary to justification, they are necessary to salvation. Okay, he's making a distinction between salvation in the narrow sense and salvation in the broad sense. Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath predestined that we should walk in them. Whosoever therefore in years of discretion brings not forth good works after he is called, he cannot be saved. Neither was he ever predestinated to life eternal. Therefore, the scripture says that Christ will reward every man according to his works. Romans 2.6, 2 Corinthians 9.6, Revelation 22.12. Christ respects in the angels of the seven churches nothing but their works. Revelation 2.2. And at the last day he will give the heavenly inheritance only to them who have done good works, in feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, etc. At that day righteousness will, shall wear the crown, Matthew 25, 2 Timothy 4.8. No righteousness, no crown, no good works according to a man's talent, no reward from God unless it be vengeance. Romans 2.8 To be rich in good works is the surest foundation of our assurance to obtain eternal life. 1 Timothy 6.19 For good works are the true fruits of a true faith, which apprehendeth Christ, and is obedience unto salvation. And no other faith availeth in Christ but that which worketh by love. Galatians 5.6 And, but in the act of justification, that faith which only justifieth is never alone, but ever accompanied by good works, as a tree with its fruits, the sun with its light, the fire with its heat, the water in his mo with its moisture. And the faith which does not justify herself by good works before men is but dead faith, which will never justify a man's soul before God, James 2.26. But a justifying faith purifieth the heart and sanctifieth the whole man throughout, Acts 15.9, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Number two, in other words, faith without works is dead. You've got to have good works. Number two, from the doctrine of God's eternal predestination, Matthew 25, 24, Ephesians 1, 4, Ecclesiastes 3, 14. And unchangeable decree he gathers that if he is be predestinated to be saved, he cannot but be saved. If to be damned, no means to do any good, therefore all works of piety are but in vain. But he should learn that God hath predestined to the means as well as to the end. Whom therefore God hath predestinated to be saved, which is the end, 1 Peter 1, 9, he hath likewise predestinated to be first called, justified, and made conformable to the image of his Son, which is, which is the means. Romans 8, 29 and 30, John 15, 16. And they, says Peter, who are elect unto salvation, are also elect unto the sanctification of the Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 2. If therefore upon thy calling thou comfortest thyself to the word and example of Christ thy Master, and obeyest the good motions of the Holy Spirit, and leaving sin, and living a godly life, then assure thyself thou art one of those who are infallibly predestined to everlasting salvation. If otherwise, blame not God's predestination, but thine own sin and rebellion. Do thou but return to God, and God will graciously receive thee, as the Father did the prodigal son, and by thy conversion it shall appear both to angels and men, that thou didst belong to his election. Luke fifteen ten and 24. If thou wilt not, why should God save thee? Number three. 
when a carnal Christian hears that men hath not a free will unto good, he looseth the reins to have his own corrupt, corrupt will, as though it lay not in him to bridle, or to subdue it, implicitly making God the author of sin, and suffering man to run into his, this necessity. But he should know that God gave Adam free will to stand in his own integrity if he would, but man, abusing his free will, lost both himself and it. Since the fall, man in his state of corruption hath free will to evil, but not to good. For in this state we are not, says the apostle, sufficient to think a good thought. 2 Corinthians 3.5 And God is not bound to restore us to what we lost so wretchedly, and take no more care to recover again. But as soon as a man is regenerated, the grace of God freeth his will unto good, so that he doth all the good things he doth, he doth with a free will. For so the apostle says, that God of his own good pleasure worketh both the will and deed in us, who, as the apostle expoundeth, cleanseth ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, and finish our sanctification in the fear of God. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, 2 Corinthians 7. Number one, and in this state, every true Christian has free will, and so he increases in grace, so does his will and freedom. 1 John eight thirty six. For when the Son of Man shall make us free, then we shall be free indeed. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 2 Corinthians 3.17 For the Holy Spirit draws their minds, not by coaction, but by the cords of love. Canticles 1.4 By illuminating their minds to know the truth, by changing their hearts to love, to love the, the known truth, and by enabling every one of them, according to the measure of grace which he has received, to do the good which he loveth. But thou wilt not use the freedom of thy will, so far as God hath freed it, for thou dost many things willfully against God's law to the hazard of thy soul, which, if the king's law forbid, under the penalty of death or loss of thy worldly estate, thou wouldest not do. Make not, therefore, thy want of free will to good, to be much of the cause of thy sin, as thy want of a loving heart to serve thy heavenly Father. In other words, don't, don't blame inner depravity, on, don't blame your sins on that. Blame it on the fact that you're not willing to put the love of God first. Number four. When the natural man hears that no man, since the fall, is able to fulfill the law of God and to keep all his commandments, he boldly presumes to sin as others do. He contends himself with a few good thoughts, and if he be not altogether as bad as the worst, he concludes that he is, not, that he is truly regenerate as the best. And every voluntary refuser of doing good or withstanding evil, he counts the impossibility of the law. But he should learn that, though since the fall no man but Christ, who is both God and man, did or can perfectly fulfill the whole law, Yet every true Christian, as soon as he is regenerate, begins to keep all God's commandments in truth, though he cannot in absolute perfection. Thus with David, they apply their hearts to fulfill God's commandments always unto the end. Psalm 119.112 And then the Spirit of grace, which was promised to be more abundantly poured forth under the gospel, helps them in their good endeavors and assists them to do what he commands them to do. Joel 2.28-29, Zechariah 12.10 And in so doing, God accepts their good will and endeavor. 2 Corinthians 8.12 And we would always want to say that God accepts our good works only through the blood of Christ. Christ having fulfilled the law for us, and in this respect, John says that God's commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5.3 And St. Paul says, I am able to do all things through the help of him that strengtheneth me. Philippians 4.13 and Zachary and Elizabeth are said to walk in all the commandments of the Lord without reproof. Luke 1.6 Hereupon com commands 
to his disciples the care of keeping his commandments is the truest testimony of our love unto him. John 15, 10. So far, therefore, do the man love Christ as he makes conscience to walk in his commandments, and the more unto Christ is our love, the less will our pain seem in keeping in his law. The law's curse, which under the Old Testament was so terrible, is anew by the death of Christ, <coughs> abolished to the, to the regenerate. The rigor, which made it so impossible to our nature before, is now to the newborn so mollified by the Spirit that it seems facile and easy. The apostles indeed pressed on to the unconverted Jews and Gentiles the impossibility of keeping the law by ability of nature corrupted. But when they have to do with regenerate Christians, they require to the law, which is the will of righteousness, true obedience in word and deed, the mortifying of their members, the crucifying of the flesh, with the affections and lusts thereof, resurrection and newness of life, walking in the spirit, O coming of the world by faith. Romans 15, 18, 8, 11, 1 John 4, 5, 4. So that though no man can say as Christ, which of you can rebuke me of sin, John 8, 46, yet every regenerate Christian can say of himself, which of you can rebuke me of being an adulterer, a whoremonger, swearer, drunkard, thief, usurer, oppressor, proud, a malicious, covetous, profaner of the Sabbath, a liar, a neglecter of God's public service, and such like gross sins? Or else he is no Christian. When a man casts off the conscience of being ruled by God's law, then God gives him over to be led by his own lusts, the sure sign of a reprobate sense, Romans 1, 24 and 28. Thus the law which since the fall no man by his own natural ability can fulfill is fulfilled in truth in every regenerate Christian through the gracious assistance of Christ's Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9, etc. And this spirit God will give to every Christian that will pray for it and will incline his heart to keep his laws. Luke eleven thirteen and James 1, 5. Okay, and you notice he makes a distinction between gross, you know, blatant sins and struggles of the mind and so forth. You know, Christ, Christians, now Christians backslide and do commit adultery. That's, that's true. David did. But, you know, you don't see Christians going out and hanging out with hell's angels and dealing drugs and visiting prostitutes and taking drugs. and All these obvious gross sins Christians should have nothing to do with. Our struggles should be struggles primarily of, with lust in the mind. <clears throat> Number five. When the unregenerate man hears that God delighted more in the inward mind than in the outward man, then he feigns within himself that all outward reverence and profession is but either superstitious or super superfluous. Hence it is that he seldom kneels in the church, that he puts on his hat or sing at singing of psalms and the public prayers, which a profane varlet would not offer to do in the presence of a prince or a nobleman. And so that he may keep his mind unto God, he thinks he may fashion himself in other things to the world. He divides his thoughts. He gives so much to God and so much to his own lust. Yea, he would divide with God the Sabbath and will give him almost the one half and spend the other half wholly at his own pleasures. But know, o carnal man, that Almighty God will not be served by halves because he has created and redeemed the whole man. And as God detests the service of the outward man without the inward heart as hypocrisy, so he counts the inward service without all the external reverence to be mere profaneness. He requires both in his worship. In prayer, therefore, bow thy knees, in witness of thy humiliation, lift up thine eyes and thy hands, in testimony of thy confidence, hang down thy head and smite thy breast, in token of thy contrition. But especially call upon God with a sincere heart. Serve him holily. Serve him holy. Serve him only. For God and the prince of this world are two contrary masters, and therefore no man can possibly serve both.
Number six. The unregenerate Christian holds the hearing of the gospel preached to be but an indifferent matter, which he may use or not use at his pleasure. But whoever so thou art, thou wilt be assured in thy heart that thou art one of Christ's elect sheep. Thou must have a special care and conscience, if thou, if possibly thou canst, to bear God's to hear God's words preached. For first, the preaching of the gospel and the chief is the chief ordinary means which God has appointed to convert the souls of all that hath predestined to be saved. Acts 8.48 Therefore it is called the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Romans 1.16 And where this divine ordinance is not, the people perish. Proverbs 29.18 And whosoever shall refuse it, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for these people. Matthew 10.22 Secondly, the preaching of the gospel is the standard or ensign of Christ. Isaiah 11.1 To which all soldiers and elect people must assemble themselves. When this ensign is displayed, as upon the Lord's day, he is none other of, he is, he is none of Christ's people that flocks not unto it. Isaiah 2, 2. Neither shall any drop of the rain of, of his grace light upon their souls. Zechariah fourteen seventeen. Thirdly, is the ordinary means by which the Holy Ghost beginneth faith in our hearts. Romans ten fourteen. Without which we cannot please God. Hebrews eleven six. If the hearing of Christ's voice be the chief mark of Christ's elect sheep, and of the bridegroom's friend, John 10, 27, 3, 29, then must it be a fearful mark of the reprobate, goat, Hebrews 2, John 8, 47, either to neglect or condemn to hear the preaching of the gospel. <clears throat> Let no man think his position foolish, for by this foolishness of preaching it pleases God to save them which believe, 1 Corinthians 1, 11. Their state is therefore fearful who live in peace without caring for the preaching of the gospel. Can men look for God's mercy and despise his means? He, says Christ to the preachers of this gospel, what despiseth you despite that he that despiseth you despiseth me. Luke ten sixteen. John eight four and seven. He that is not of God heareth God's word. He that is of God heareth God's words. You therefore cannot hear, because you are not of God. Had not the Israelites heard the message of Phineas? They had never wept, Judges 2, 1, etc. Had not the Baptist preached, the Jews had never mourned, Luke 7, 32, 33. Had not they who crucified Christ heard Peter's sermon, their hearts would not have been pricked, Acts 2, 37. Had not the Ninevites heard Jonah's preaching, they never would have repented, Jonah 3, 5. And if thou wilt not hear and repent, thou was never saved, Proverbs 28, 9, Luke 13.5. Number seven. The opinion that the sacraments are but bare signs and seals of God's promise and grace to us doth not a little hinder piety, whereas indeed they are seals as well as our service and obedience unto God, which service, if we perform not to him the sacraments, seal no grace to us. But if we receive them upon the resolution to be his faithful and penitent servants, then the sacraments do not only signify and offer, but also seal and exhibit, indeed, the inward spiritual grace which they outwardly promise and represent. And to this end, baptism is called the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5, in the Lord's Supper, the communion of the body and blood of Christ, 1 Corinthians 10.16. Were this truth believed, the Holy Sacrament of the Lord's Supper would be more often, and with greater reverence, received. And remember, we have the Lord's Supper next week, everybody. It's next week, next Sunday. Uh, number eight, the last. And that's interesting. Here's somebody in 1611 arguing for more frequency of the Lord's Supper. 
uh, number eight, the last and not the least block of which piety stumbles at the course of religion is by adorning vices, adorning vices with the names of virtues, as to call drunken carousing, drinking of health, spilling innocent blood, valor, gluttony, hospitality, covetousness, thriftiness, whoredom, loving a mistress, simony, gratuity, pride, gracefulness, dissembling, compliment, children of Belial, good fellows, wrath, hastiness, ribaldry, mirth, so on the other side to call sobriety in words and actions, hypocrisy, alms, alms deeds, vainglory, devotion, superstition, zeal in religion, puritanism, humility, crouching, scruple of conscience, preciseness, etc. And whilst thus we call evil good and good evil, true piety is much hindered in her progress. And thus much of the first hindrance of piety by mistaking the true sense of some special places of scripture and grounds of Christian religion. Okay, that's the first, that's this discussion of carnal Christianism. And you always have to be careful, you know, you, if you press certain things too much, people will doubt their salvation and there could be a crisis there. The Puritans were sometimes guilty of that, especially in New England, and they lost their grandchildren to the world, and New England is one of the most corrupt, wicked places in the United States today. Um, so you've got to be careful. We emphasize holiness. Holiness is required. Holiness is necessary. But don't keep but don't be dwelling too much on your belly button. Keep your eyes focused on Christ because yes, we are sinners. And I, I like the distinction I made this morning between habitual sin, you know, habitual and scandalous sin with you know Christians struggling every day. And here we go. The second hindrance of piety. Roman numeral two. The evil examples of great persons, the practice of whose profane lives they prefer for their imitation before the precepts of God's holy word, so that when they see the greatest men in the state and many chief gentlemen in the country, to make neither care nor conscience to hear sermons, to receive the communion, nor to sanctify the Lord's Sabbath, etc., but to be swearers, adulterers, carousers, oppressors, etc., then they think that the using of these holy ordinances are not matters of so great moment. For if they were such great and wise men, would not set so little value on them. Hereupon they think that religion is not a matter of necessity. Therefore, where they should, like Christians, row against the stream of the impiety towards heaven, they suffer themselves to be carried with the multitude downward to hell, thinking it impossible that God will suffer so many to be damned. Whereas, if the God of this world had not blinded the eyes of their minds, the use of holy scriptures would teach them that, quote, not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, etc. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. How many rock stars? Are Christians. Well, one of the uh, one or two of the group America became Christians. I think Jethro's Tull, Jethro Tull's drummer became a Christian. But other than that, I can't think of anybody. There's a few. How many politicians are real Christians? I mean, real Christians. How many? Very, very few. How many super rich men like Donald Trump are real Christians? I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. There, I'm sure there's some out there. Abraham was rich, but I mean, how many are there today that are really Christians? I can't think of any. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But that for the most part, the poor receive the gospel, and that few rich men shall be saved, Matthew 11, 5, 19, 23, and 24. And that howsoever many are called, yet the chosen are very are but few. Neither did the multitude ever save any but uh, ever save any from damnation, Matthew twenty two fourteen. In other words, don't don't follow the world spirit. Don't follow the the worldview of, of, of the people of the world. Don't follow what's popular. Uh, who cares what they even think? Don't go after what they think is good. 
It's all useless. It's all vanity. <coughs> As God advanced men in greatness above others, so does God expect that they in religion and piety should go before others. Otherwise, greatness abused, and the time of their stewardship shall turn to their greater condemnation in the day of their accounts. I mean, think of John Lennon and George Harrison, who were the most successful rock group in history, the Beatles, perhaps, and Paul and John, perhaps the greatest writers in rock and roll history. Uh, but without Christ, what good does it do you when you're dead? What good does it do you? Just think of the influence you could have had for good, and instead you used it to get people into Hinduism and mysticism and lies. It's, it's, it's fearful, and I, you know, I, it's tough to think about. At what time sinful great and mighty men, as well as the poorest slaves and bondmen, shall wish that the rocks and mountains should fall upon them, and hide them from the presence of the judge, and from his just deserved wrath, Revelation 6.15 and 16, etc. It will prove but a miserable solace to have a great company of great men, partakers with thee, of thine eternal torments. The multitude of sinners doth not extenuate, but aggregate sin, as in Sodom. Better is therefore with a few to be saved in the ark, than with the whole world to be drowned in the flood. Walk with the few, godly in the narrow path to heaven, but crowd not with the godless multitude in the broad way to hell. Exodus 23.2 Let not the example of irreligious great men hinder thy repentance, for their greatness cannot at that day exempt them from their own grievous punishment. And just a thought here. Uh, you know, uh, studies have been done uh, of evangelicals. I think 75% of evangelical children go apostate by the end of their years in college. Something like 75%. It's, I think, 50% by the time they graduate from high school or 40%. But by the time they end up with college. Now, why? Well, they're surrounded by the world. They're trained. Every, every subject in college is taught from the perspective of wickedness, of Satan. Every subject, from geology to economics, everything's taught from a perspective of Satan, for the most part. And these children, by the time they graduate from college, become heathen swine. And they're fornicating and getting stoned like the rest. And, and not bothering with church, not bothering with public worship, not bothering with reading their Bibles or praying or any of that. So, don't be affected by the world. Don't listen to the world. Uh, who cares what people think about you? If Christ is happy with your behavior, if Christ is happy with how you're conducting yourself, that's all that matters. And then the third hindrance of piety, number three, Roman numeral number three. The long escaping of deserved punishment in this life, because sentence, says Solomon, is not speedily executed against an evildoer. Therefore, the hearts of the children of men are fully set to do in them to do evil, not knowing that the bountifulness of God leadeth them to repentance. Ecclesiastes 8. 11, Romans 2, 4, 2 Peter 3, 10. But when his patience is abused and men's sins are ripened, his justice will at once both begin and make an end of the sinner. 1 Samuel 3, 12, Ezekiel 39, 8. And he will recompense the slowness of his delay with the grievousness of his punishment. Though they were suffered to run on the score all the days of their life, yet they shall be sure to pay the utmost farthing at the day of their death. And whilst they suppose themselves to be free from judgment, they are already smitten with the heaviest of God's judgments, a heart that cannot repent. Romans 2.5 The stone of the reins, or bladder, is a grievous pain that kills many a man's body. But there is no disease to the stone of the heart, whereof Nabal died, and which kills millions of souls, 1 Samuel 
They refuse the trial of Christ and his cross, and they are stoned by hell's executioner to eternal death. Because many nobles and gentlemen are not smitten with present judgment for their outraging, outrageous swearing, adultery, drunkenness, oppression, profaning of the Sabbath, and disgraceful neglect of God's worship and service, they begin to doubt of divine providence and justice, both which two eyes they would as willingly put out in God. And as the Philistines bored out the eyes of Samson, it is greatly therefore to be feared lest they provoke the Lord to cry out against them as Samson against the Philistines. Judges 16.21 by neglecting the law and walking after their own hearts, they put out, as much as in them lieth the eyes of my providence and justice. Lead me, therefore, to these chief pillars, Judges 16.26, etc., whereupon the realm standeth, and I may put the realm upon thy heads, and be at once avenged of them for my two eyes. Let not God's patience hinder thy repentance, but because he is so patient, therefore do thou the rather repent." And, of course, the passage we all think of is the one in Romans. God's long-suffering leadeth thee to repentance, which is, of course, a reference to the Old Testament. Don't take it for, hey, I'm getting away with this. I'm going to continue doing this. No. God's been kind to you. You deserve to be in hell right now, but you're not. Go to Christ immediately. And then the fourth hindrance of piety, Roman numeral four. <clears throat> the presumption of God's mercy. For when men are justly convinced of their sins, for what they betake themselves to the, to the shield, Christ is merciful, so that every sinner makes Christ the patron of his sins, as though he had come into the world to boast their sin, and not to destroy the works of the devil. John 3.3 3. Hereupon the carnal Christian presumes that though he continues a little while longer in sin, God will, will not shorten his days. But what is this but to be an implicit atheist? Doubting that either God seeth not his sins, or if he does... Uh, that he is not just, or that he believes that God is just, how can he think that God, for, who for sin so severely punishes others, can love him, who still loveth to continue in sin? True it is, Christ is merciful, but to whom? Only to them that repent and turn away from iniquity in Jacob, Isaiah. <clears throat> but if any man bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk according to the stubbornness of my own heart, thus adding drunkenness to thirst, the Lord will not be merciful to him, etc., Deuteronomy 29.19 O madmen, who dare bless themselves when God pronounceth them accursed, look, therefore, how far thou art from finding repentance in thyself. So far art thou from any assurance in finding mercy in Christ. Isaiah 55.7 Let therefore the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous his own imaginations and return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he is very ready to forgive. Despair is nothing so dangerous as presumption. For we read not in all the scriptures of above three or four whom roaring despair overdrew, overthrew, but secure presumption hath sent millions to perdition without any noise, as therefore the damsel of Israel sang in their dances. Saul hath killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. First Samuel <clears throat> 18.7 So may I say that despair of God's mercy had damned thousands, but the presumption of God's mercy had damned tens of thousands, and sent them quick to hell, where now they remain in eternal torments, without any help to e of ease or hope of redemption. God spared the thief, but not his fellow. Luke 23.43 God spared one, that no man might despair. God spared but one, that mo no man should presume. 
joyful assurance to a sinner that repents, no comfort to him that remains impenitent. God is infinite in mercy, but to them only who turn from their sins to serve him in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12.14 To keep thee therefore for presuming, remember that as Christ is a Savior, so Moses is an accuser. John 5.45 Live therefore as though there were no gospel. Die as though there were no law. Pass thy life as though thou wert under the conduct of Moses. Depart thy life as thou knewest none but Christ and him crucified. Presume not if thou would not perish, repent if thou would be saved. The fifth hindrance of piety. Number five, Roman numeral five. Evil company, commonly called, termed good fellows, but indeed the devil's chief instruments to hinder a wretched sinner from repentance and piety. The first sign of God's favor to a sinner is to give him grace to forsake evil companions. Such who willfully continue in sin, Condemn the means of their calling, gibbing at the sincerity of profession of others, and shaming the Christian religion by their own profane lives. These sit in the seat of scorners, Psalm 1.1. For as soon as God admits a sinner to be one of his people, he bids him come out of Babylon. Revelation 18.4. Every lewd company is a Babylon, out of which let every child of God either keep himself, or if he be in, think that he hears his father's voice sounding in his ear, Come out of Babylon, my child. As soon as Christ looked in mercy upon Peter, he went out of the company that was in the high priest's hall and wept bitterly for his offense. Luke 22:62. David, vowing upon recovery a new life, said, Away from me, all you workers of iniquity, etc. Psalm 7, 8. As if it were possible to become a new man till he had shaken off all old evil companions. The truest proof of a man's religion is the quality of his companions. Profane companions are the chief enemies of piety and quellers of holy emotions. Many a time is poor, is poor Christ offering to be a newborn in thee, thrust into the stable. Luke 2.7 When these lewd companions by their drinking, plays, and jest take up all the best rooms in the inn of thy heart, O let not the company of evil sinners hinder thee from the society of heavenly saints and angels. And I'll say in my experiences over many years, Every person I've known who professes Christ who hung out with unbelievers acted like unbelievers. Now, if you're with unbelievers and you're there to witness to them and speak to them of Christ and the gospel and speak to them about sin and the judgment to come, what's going to happen? Those people aren't going to want to hang out with you at all. They're going to tell you to get lost and they're going to hate you. I know all my old friends hate my guts. They think I'm a fool. But if you're with them and you're smoking their weed and you're snorting the coke and you're hitting on the girls and you're, doing, you're going to bars and doing all these things with them, well, sure, they're going to be happy to hang out with you because you're acting like a pagan because you haven't repented. But if you act like a Christian, they're not going to want to be with you for five minutes. Don't hang out with unbelievers. If you're with an unbeliever, you should be there with them for one reason only, to witness to them. Now, if you've got to conduct business, if you have to go to the store or if you have to... Uh, you know, you have a business and, you, and you, you're going to run into pagans and so forth. You can't go out of the world, Paul says. But be not unweakly yoked with unbelievers. They should never be your close friends. You should never have them as business partners. You should never have them uh, in a partnership or have them as your friends at all. The only time you're with unbelievers is if you've got to buy a loaf of bread or you've got to sell a loaf of bread or you're witnessing to them. And believe me, 
they're not going to want to hang out with you if you're talking about sin and the judgment to come and hell and Christ and all those wonderful things. They're not going to want to hang out with you at all. All my old friends hate my guts, the ones that didn't become Christians. And they make, they make fun of me and they mock me. What an idiot. He, you know, he gave up. He was in a popular rock group and was making money and was popular. And he gave all that up to, you know, preach to small groups of people and have everybody hate him. They think I'm a fool. Well, fine. Who cares what they think? What does Christ think? If you're in college and you're a Christian, make sure you don't hang out with pagans and make sure you don't go to pagan parties and make sure you don't fellowship with pagans at all. And the excuse, well, how am I going to witness to them? You can witness to people. I, I go up to total strangers. You can witness to strangers. You don't need to be, be buddies with them, this friendship evangelism nonsense, and hang out with them. Because Christians, professing Christians who hang out with pagans, I tell you, I know, they act like pagans. Otherwise, the pagans wouldn't hang out with them. And then I got just a teeny bit, and we'll, uh, and we'll stop there. Our, the sick hindrance of piety uh, will we'll continue next week, Lord willing. But uh, these, these are really good things. Um, we live in a time, thanks to dispensationalism, and the fact that nobody teaches the law anymore, the moral law of God. It's not taught, it's not preached. The holiness of God is not emphasized. Everybody talks about the love of God. People think the law has been abrogated. And people think uh, in what's called easy believism. Oh, I made a profession of faith. Uh, I can still commit adultery. I watched a crime show the other day. These are true crime shows where the lady was super active in her church and sang in the choir. And she was commit, habitually committing adultery and having threesomes on the side. And she was a dedicated church member in the Methodist church. Well, no, no, no. You're not a Christian at all if you haven't repented of your sins. You, you have, you're not a Christian at all. But you got to be careful. And remember what happened to the Puritans where they became so obsessed with looking at their belly button that they all doubted their salvation and they quit going to church too. You don't want to fall into that error as well. We still have lusts. We still have sinful thoughts. We still have problems we have to work on. Confess your sins, study your Bible, pray for help, move forward, don't give up. But whatever you do, don't hang out with pagans and don't do anything that would stimulate that sin. Starve the sin, feed the holiness. Starve yourself of, of those activities that would stimulate sin. Put off and put on. But we'll continue next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the labors of our brother, Louis Bailey. Very, very helpful, Lord. Help us to be more diligent. Help us to be more careful. Help us to focus on the whole gospel and the lordship of Christ and the need to repent and the, the greatness of your holy law. Help us to be habitually obedient, to put off that which is displeasing in your sight every day. In Jesus' name, amen.